0: Welcome to another episode of Mission Daily. David DeWolf is the founder and CEO of Three Pillar Global, a new breed of digital product development with a focus on product mindset. On this episode, David details how the scrappy entrepreneur can rise to the role of corporate CEO, the key pillars that make up a successful leadership team, and why now, more than ever, companies and employees need to focus on work-life integration. Enjoy. David, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. It's fun to be here. Likewise, you are calling in from Nova, Northern Virginia. What's uh, going on out there? I think what's going
1: on out here is what's going on in so many places, right? Lots of businesses struggling these days just with this coronavirus and uh, the the decline of the economy because of it. So uh, I think it's a, an important point in time to be talking about mission, right? Because businesses have an important mission of you've been folks employed. And I think we're all focused on that and trying to figure out how do we allow our businesses to thrive, but take care of
0: people at the same time. Couldn't agree more. When you are taking a step back and kind of like reflecting on things, uh, I'm really curious to know, and I always want to get info from CEOs on their origins, right? So if you're taking a step back, um, where'd you grow up and uh, where'd you come from?
1: My father was actually in the military, so I grew up all over the world, and I would say it's probably one of those things that really shaped me. Um, Growing up, we moved around, probably averaged about every year and a half to two years, I was in a new home, so it was continually in new environments, learning new things, spent a lot of my time in the Midwest uh, of the United States, but also spent some time in Washington, D.C. area, as well as we did a stint over in Europe. Uh, and so really had the opportunity to see the world and, and learn all sorts of different cultures. And I, I think that shaped me and formed me in a way, in a lot of different ways, not just uh, in terms of embracing cultures, but also being very agile and learning to adapt to situations and really really helped shape me into who I was.
0: That's so cool. Are there any big lessons or takeaways that you took from all your travels where you know, maybe you didn't see them right away but I'm sure as you entered the working world and encountered people who maybe hadn't traveled, it became yep. apparent the type of lessons that you did learn.
1: One of the, the things that has really hit me, I think especially uh, since I have been the CEO of Three Pillar, is that environment really matters and that it shapes people and it, it, it becomes very personal. And one of the things I learned moving from place to place is depending on where I was and the environment I, w- I was in, I was a different person, not because I changed, but because the environment around me changed. So I'll give you an example. Um, In one place, I could have been the star athlete and, and the best basketball player there was, and was really rocking it. And all of a sudden we'd move, and I would go to a different place, And all of a sudden there, I didn't even make the team and I was the nerd. I was the smartest one in the class, uh, in my math class, right? Those are two wildly different things that so often we think that everything is about our own innate abilities, but the reality is it depends who you're surrounded with, the environment. And and so as CEOs, it's important that we create environments where individuals can thrive and really push into and live what truly they're gifted at and what they're passionate about.
0: I love it. And so you're the CEO of 3Pillar now. I'm curious to know about your journey and when did you first get into the world of business and what would you uh, say was your kind of like starting place in the world of business? I went to school and I, I thought I was going to be in in radio
1: and television production. I actually had a, a love for music. I had a love for uh, production and the technology behind it and different things. And I, I graduated in the height of the dot com. And what I quickly learned about radio and TV is that it's very difficult to make a living. And so I ended up actually working for, at the time, what they called a new media company, an ad agency that was developing websites. And I happened to be one of the the young kids that knew how to write HTML. So I was building websites. And and three months into uh, my first stint at this ad agency, uh, one of my client companies called up our owners and said, hey, we love David. Can we hire him? It happened to be a software company that was based in Silicon Valley. And I ended up going and working for that organization and was very fortunate to have the CTO take me under his wing. Um, and I learned everything I know about technology on the fly, on the job, and from that CTO. Um, but for, in that organization, at the time they were building a product through the dot com and the crash, they ended up becoming a professional services organization. And um, I began to consult with a lot of organizations and ended up uh, really in the, the technology consulting world for quite some time. And that's where I kind of grew up and began to to learn the art of business. Um, And eventually, back in 2006, decided that I wanted to leave the consulting world um, and become an independent consultant. I thought, you know, I have built this business for so many others. I want to control. There were two things. Number one, I wanted to work on the most innovative products and really be doing cool technology work. Um, But number two, what was really important to me was that I love the art of bringing together high-performing teams. And when you are working in a team that is able to accomplish more than any one of us could on on its own, um, it's just a powerful experience to me. And I really wanted to find those teams. And I thought as an independent consultant, I would have the ability to do that. Um, And so I I became a consultant um, and I was writing code still 80 hours a week. I mean, I loved software development, working with teams um, to build innovative products. When When I picked my head up one day and about two years into the business, I had six people working for me. And it was a, oh my goodness, experience of just realizing the awesome responsibility of employing others and being responsible for their paycheck. Um, And that was really the moment um, in late 2008 that I decided very deliberately that, you know what, I was going to walk away from the technology and really invest in becoming a CEO and that what I really loved about technology was building something out of nothing. And I had the ability to build something out of nothing in building a company in the niche we had fallen into. That that I really thought I could thrive at, and I, I really wanted to do because of the impact I could have on the people and creating those types of environments where others could really thrive. So that's a bit where yeah,
0: it's a bit where I'm at in my journey now. So mission is uh, I was started as a solo founder, and we just passed our third year in business, and we went through some uh, growth spasms and crises of uh, direction and all kinds of things. Grew too fast, then scaled back, and I really. Had to take a step back. Um, I so I started uh, treatment for post traumatic stress disorder that I never fully dealt with from the military, and really have embraced uh, this mindset of how do I become a real CEO? Because it's one thing you know to get things started and you know grow things, but it's an entirely different thing to prepare for the vision you have, right? Um, Because I've discovered myself in this this weird, uh, wonderful niche that I'm well suited to be in. However, I know my skills need a leg up. So I'd be fascinated to know about how you went about starting to become the CEO that you are now. Mm -hmm. Well, first I'd start with
1: saying the the reality that you have just grappled with and and really allowing it to sink in that there is a difference between being the scrappy entrepreneur and being a CEO. I, I think that's just a realization that so many don't come to. Um, And if you look at the the academics behind this migration, so many don't make it from phase one CEO, right, being the entrepreneur to phase two, three, and four. And to me, that process has been about deliberately looking to grow my leadership and making sure that I understand it. So that's the first thing I'd start with. The the second thing I would say is that um, you used another word, which is vision, Um, being really deliberate about that vision and crystallizing what you're trying to do. Um, I think part of the art of leadership is making sure that uh, to use a military phrase, everybody knows what hill we're trying to take, right? Um, and painting that vision is hard and being a vision led leader is difficult and it takes time that it requires deliberate thought. And so often in these entrepreneurial phases, we don't pause and step back and give our time ourselves time to think to really craft that vision, but then not just craft it. Uh, part of the job of a CEO is to articulate it and make sure that you communicate it over and over and over again. Um, and then the third piece that I think is really, really important is the, this notion of responsibility. Um, I think too many people see the job of a CEO um, as a privilege. They see it as um, authority. They see it as something that they get. Um, I get to lead this organization. It it is an awesome responsibility, and it's one about service. It's one about really helping others to succeed and investing in them and creating an environment um, where they can thrive. And to do that, you have to do the hard work. Um, it's not a privilege where you can say, well, I don't have to manage anymore, or I don't have to do this, I don't have to do that. No, 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 no. The job of the CEO is to do the really hard stuff that nobody wants to do, um, to, to have the brutally difficult conversations, um, to, to communicate that vision over and over, even when you yourself are tired of it, right? All of those types of things.
0: Yeah, and learning to love those things or loving the aftermath of having those hard conversations. I mean, it's something you forget before you have the conversation. And then you remember afterwards how good it feels to have everybody on the same page and you know sometimes cut ties with people and very, very hard things happen. However, both parties grow and then you, you remember it afterwards. So I'm right there with you that these things are so important to keep perfecting. As you were starting to figure out more about how to distill your vision into an articulatable form for your team, did you go about writing a lot? Did you go about uh, seeking outside counsel, having conversations with other CEOs? What was that process like? And how'd you become excellent at distilling the vision?
1: First of all, I, I think the tactics that you're talking about are are really critical to just think through what are the, what's the process you go through. And I, I think the first one is being in the market, um, like going out and talking. One of the things I did very early on, um, and I, I credit... Um, a lot of our success to this unconscious competence, right? I wish it was as deliberate as it it should have been. Um, But when we were very small, I probably had six or eight employees. We had maybe a million in revenue. I went out and I put together a board of directors. And and at this time, I still had um, 100% ownership of the company. And, um, a lot of people criticized me. So what what are you doing? Why are you giving up control? And and my answer at that point in time is I've never run a business before. And I want to learn from industry experts, folks that have run businesses before. And so I I just kind of humbled myself and said, if the decision is not one, um, that that is good for me, I should listen to it, right? If the people that I've selected to surround myself to with and, and yield my authority to um, don't agree with me, it's probably for my best interest. And so just learning to surround yourself with others that are in the market that have been there, done that leaders that have have come before you um, and listening to their advice, but also not being afraid to to lead them through the process, I think is really, really important And that I call it humble confidence, having the humility to listen to others and to really seek their advice, um, put it into practice, but also the confidence to stay um, firmly in grasp of your vision and to drive for it. And and so, doing that, and then being in the market and listening to what's going on in your competitors and those types of things, listening and collecting information. And then you're exactly right. I I did start to write, I did start to um, give more um, talks. I I started to practice it over and over and over. And here we are, you know, 12 years later, uh, you do it so much that you perfect it over time more and more and more and more, and it becomes easier to communicate. And oh, by the way, it's a continual process of evolving it and going back to the beginning and listening. Listening to those around you, listening to the market, practicing it again and taking it to the next level. Definitely. And one of
0: the books you wrote is called The Product Mindset. Could you walk us through those uh, the three principles uh, in the book? Yeah, what we do in the book is we, we step back and we uh, really teach the
1: lessons that we've learned over the years. Uh, Three Pillar, we build software products for media, information, technology, and retail companies. And um, those products are the software that's driving this digital economy. And, and what we tell our clients, what we, we teach ourselves and our employees over and over again is that a product is fundamentally different from other types of software, right? With this world has been building software for a very long time. Um, But what's different about the digital economy is that in the digital economy, the software itself is not supporting the business. It is the business. It is the good or service that's being sold. Um, It is the value that's being exchanged in the business transaction. And that requires a fundamentally different mindset. Um, And so what we do in the book is we we describe the three characteristics that make this type of software different um, fundamentally. And um, we go through them. So, so number one is what I just mentioned: that a software product is the value proposition. It has to be what we call in the book self-funding. It has to create its own revenue stream. It's not about saving pennies. It's not about optimizing efficiency. It's about creating so much value that it's driving dollars, um, and that makes it different from other types of software. Um, the second thing that we lay out in the book. Um, is that the other aspect that's unique about a product is that it has to be chosen by the customer. It's not some piece of software that's running in your closet and automating something. It's not, not something that you can force on your employees. You actually have to build something that is so um, important that your customers need it and they choose to use it and most often they're actually choosing to pay for it. And that creates another level of bar. And oh, by the way, that is a need that you have to discover over time because as opposed to other types of software where you have requirements that you can dictate because you are supporting your own supply line, you're actually supporting needs of other people that you have to discover and learn about and learn how to build that loyalty and and drive that value to them. And then the third characteristic is that is fundamentally different about a software product is that the work is never done. Um, Think about the world we live in. If you just pull out your phone, how many updates are happening to those different apps today that you use on your phone and you choose to use? Um, The reality is that the top 10 apps in the App Store are updated 10 times as often. as the rest of the apps. And that's because users in today's digital economy expect rapid innovation, they expect evolution, they expect you to meet tomorrow's need, not just today's need. Um, Whereas other types of software, you can build it and it can run, you can build it and you can force users to use it and it will just continue to go. And so those three things in particular are the lessons we've learned over the years that make software products different. Um, And so the book is all about uh, putting that into the hands of the market. We think the entire digital economy needs to learn this. um, the reason so many digital transformations fail is because we don't recognize and value how the software products we're trying to build are fundamentally different from the software we built yesteryear. So while it's the same technology, oftentimes we're using the same processes, empowering people to understand those differences and make different judgment calls in the moment as they are working day in, day out, um, allows us to build software in a way that's more efficient and more productive and is actually driving the business outcomes that we're seeking um, as opposed to just building software.
0: Yeah, it's so cool. And uh, it's- Fits into the broad definition of technology, doing more with less. Um, that's the the goal of this whole thing. So when you look out at the uh, entrepreneurial, the business climate today, there's uh, a big shift with software eating the world, and now it's evolving into something new. Are there any other big trends that you see that you're you're following, or that you think are not appropriately valued yet by the market?
1: It's interesting because in technology, it's so much about the trends. Um, and and what, what I think is. So often, we're talking about things before they come of age versus the opposite, which is the question you asked, which is, what are we not talking about yet? So I would start the conversation with um, AI and machine learning. It's all the buzz. It's what everybody's talking about. The reality is, though, unless you're Netflix or Facebook or Google, very few people are doing real artificial intelligence. Very few people are doing real machine learning. Um, And so many people feel behind right? Um, and so that's a really important thing for for organizations to know and understand. And, and one of the trends that I see is that we're just starting to get ready to really leverage it in the common business today. Right, Those that aren't in the top 5 that are actually doing it already, I believe in the next 12 to 18 months, you will see um, significantly more. A uh, a dramatic increase in actual machine learning and artificial intelligence embedded within the software products we use on a day in and day out basis. Um, It's not happening yet. The reality is um, those technologies uh, and approaches are being used for operational efficiency. They're not used in consumer products to the degree that they have the the potential to impact. And I think that's going to happen. Um, The other thing that I see that's in the early phases and is related, but is really going to pop more and more, and I I think this phase we're going through with coronavirus is actually going to push it, is um, digital business really accelerating. Um, People have been talking about digital transformation for a long time, um, but we're not really there. And a big part of that is Um, data-based businesses, leveraging the data that we have within enterprises to really provide brand new, unique value to the market. And, um, that's something we've talked about forever. There's a lot of products out there that do it. But I think we're, we've still only uh, you know, tapped the very tip of the iceberg, right? If 15 to 20% of the businesses have already deployed brand new, data-rich digital products. There are a lot more that have the ability to do it. And I think you know, world events that force people to disrupt their own business models are, are going to really
0: accelerate that. And we're going to see a real boon in that in the latter half of 2020 and into 2021. I couldn't agree more. And I think the cultural changes that we're starting to see as a result of this pandemic are going to make for interesting times. There is this debate, I guess you could call it, that's now starting to happen worldwide about what type of connected society do we want to have. And there's trade-offs for things like globalization and nationalism, and I'm not talking about anything political here. I'm just talking about the fact that more people than ever before are kind of in on this debate of what type of culture are we going to create and how are we going to collaborate together across borders, across continents or whatever the case is. And I think the cultural angle is something that is um, that's going to be the ultimate operating system for new waves of innovation. So you've lived through some of the you know downturns and uh, upticks and you, you know, you've seen this scenario play out before at the end of 2008 And I'm curious to know, what do you think is coming with the recovery? What's your take on the coming recovery that inevitably follows downturns?
1: It's really easy in periods of time like this to curl up in a ball and get scared And, and to be fearful. And to a very large degree, it's important that we as business owners are prudent and take the right steps to protect not only our businesses, but our people. At the same time, I believe that these are opportunities, and I lived through it in two thousand and eight in the reception and, and the reality is two thousand and eight is the year that three pillar broke out um, because there was an opportunity when everybody else was pulling back, we had nothing to lose. So we were pushing forward. I think you will see that in this economy right there will be new winners that emerge um, because of the disruption and because of the conservativism that people react with um, so I, I think that's one thing. I think the other thing that you will see is. Um, A series of things, and none of us can predict them, we can all guess, um, but things that never go back to normal, right? I'm hearing a lot of talk right now about, right, when are we going to get back to normal? What's going to look like? I don't think we're going to get back to, quote, business as usual, meaning that these things tend to drive true disruption. And so take an example, right? We've all heard the press about how Zoom has now taken off and, and it's really thriving in this economy right? Well, if we are realizing that video conferencing um, can really be a platform for business in ways that we haven't done before, do you think we'll ever get back to the level of travel that we've had before or ever get back to a normal workplace environment, what we'd call normal, where there is a home base and everybody everywhere isn't virtual. I don't know the answers to those questions, but I'm asking them. And I'm saying, are there fundamental things that will change about our way of life? And I believe there are going to be two, three, or four of them that we look back in 10 years and say, it was those few months in 2020, um, coming out of the first quarter into the second quarter, where that fundamentally changed and changed the way that we live. Um, and I think that's going to be a huge impact and is going to be part of those opportunities that others have to, to really step into that.
0: Yes. And it's an exciting point you bring up where you know we're going to be looking back at the first quarter and the second quarter of 2020. It's just a good reminder to remember that we're living through a period in history that's really unique and Anytime there's a lot of fear out there from the media, there's also all of these opportunities. So in your career, with everything that you've learned, how do you go about spotting these opportunities and what type of radar have you developed for identifying opportunities that others might downplay, scoff at, or even scorn the the fact that you're, you're investigating them? So how do you go about that?
1: So for me, step one is to actually protect the core. Uh, So that requires very swift action to make sure that as a business leader, you are doing what you need to do to be able to go out there and listen and look for those opportunities. If you're scared about uh, the ramifications, if you haven't taken the appropriate bold moves that you need to make, right? So for example, within three days of this happening, we had a brand new budget for the year. We said, this is dramatic. We need to pull back on our expectations. We need to be more prudent and very quickly put that in place. So first step was to to do that and recognize that the world had changed and take swift action to communicate that to the team and say, we're going to approach this year a little bit differently. But once I had that in place, then it allowed me to empower the team to run against that new plan. And I could then go out. And now today, I would say, probably at least 40% of my time um, is being spent out in the market. um, And obviously, when I say that, I mean from my home. um, But talking to others, right? I have deliberately reached out to other executives that I know, CEOs of other businesses, being part of forums of of CEOs that are getting together, talking about what they're seeing, listening to others, and really connecting. I'm doing a lot of reading, making sure that I'm digesting information, not just from one news source, but many of them and even going back to the raw data sometimes really looking at what is transpiring and understanding and collecting that and being that radar, that then we can go back. And and what's important is to really distill these things after listening and realize that you have to go from first crisis mode is very quickly um, to, to, to solidify the base. And then you move towards very deliberate bets of recognizing patterns, looking for those patterns, and then act on them. And the first step of that is being in the market, having your ears open, and then you have to come back and you have to begin to experiment with those and see where they take you. Um, And I'd say that's where we are right now. We're starting to learn some of those trends. We're starting to see some of them ourselves and just starting to feed that back into the system to now be methodical and deliberate about how we're going to go test some of those assumptions out.
0: Sure. And when it comes to work-life integration, obviously the new normal for everyone is this quarantine mode, working from home, Uh, rethinking all of our habitual behaviors that we've had in the past around work and life. So what's that new type of work-life integration look like for you?
1: Yeah. So, yeah, this is great. I I love the word work-life integration because I I can't stand the word balance because it implies that your life has to be in conflict with your work. And it's one of the fundamentals that we don't allow to happen at Three Pillar. Um, I believe that everybody is a human individual and that um, whether they're a a mother or a father uh, doesn't matter if they're in the office or at home, they still are that, right? And so I say all the time, I, I have uh, taken conference calls that I had to take uh, coaching third base uh, while I was being a baseball coach for my kids. Um, and likewise, if I'm in a board meeting and I get a phone call from the hospital, you better believe I, I, I'm going to take it to take care of my kids. Um, and I think the world is experiencing this in a very unique and new way um, that we are holistic, integrated individuals, and we can't rip apart the different parts of our lives and put them in conflict with one another. Um, for me, what I'm going through and living in that moment is probably a little bit unique in that I actually have eight
0: children. Um, <laughs> Congrats. Um, I have three sons, so uh, I'm in awe. That's awesome. Well, don't be in awe with me. My wife is the <laughs> one that does all the hard work. Uh,
1: <laughs> but, but, you know, here I am and I have uh, my oldest daughter is in college and she is now home and uh, taking classes, obviously online, um, like so many university students. Um, then I have uh, three in high school, um, in two different schools, and, and two of them are, are doing more assignment based work. Another one has more video classes. Right. Then I have uh, three uh, elementary school aged um, uh, children, and um, they are actually homeschooled. Two of them are. And then the youngest one is, isn't yet in preschool. And so it's a, just this variety that looks really, really interesting. And um, in this world, we're having to adapt, right? We had to, the very first weekend, divide up the house and say, how are we going to have all these video conferences? I've got to upgrade the internet connection, all these different things. But the thing that became important to me within a week and a half of starting to work from home, and I, I typically don't work from home much, um, what I realized was it was so much more difficult to separate and and to do exactly the opposite of what I always preach, which was separate my work from my family life. I, I preach this integration, but it became a stark reality that because of that, Depth of integration that I had, and now that my office was in the home, I no longer had a commute that was dividing the workday from the family time. And so, I had to start to get very, very prescriptive to make sure that my work didn't bleed over till 830, 9.30 at night, and that I was actually checking out to go upstairs for dinner, spend deliberate family time, and and finding a way to create a little bit of a boundary. So, for me, um, this was actually more about um, kind of leaning away from that integration more than I typically live and and preach and realizing that I had to make sure that I really was protecting uh, the need to be with my family, to to invest in my kids during this time um, because they need me. Um, And then taking it back And um, helping my employees with the same thing. Um, And and the reality in organizations is that people look at the top. If they see me working through dinner because I haven't figured out how to pry myself away from my home desk, my goodness, what kind of message does that send uh, to our teams about what I expect? Um, And so being very deliberate through this period of time of just talking about it, surfacing these challenges that we all haven't encountered with and, and saying, hey, we're learning new things. Let's be deliberate about it. Um, and I think that's important is to acknowledge that we're all still learning. It's kind of cracked me up how many people on LinkedIn these days are claiming to be experts in in remote work and working from home. So they are yesterday's social media experts, right? And let's, instead of pretending to be experts in it, just admit that we're muddling our way through it and we're figuring it out and let's figure it out together.
0: Yeah, I love that. And it's something too, where each individual, like you mentioned, is going to come up with a work lifestyle that's unique. And it's if we're, you know, always looking to, oh, is this compare to this person or that person, or this person's kind of giving me flack because they think I'm not a good father and this person, you know, it becomes impossible to create our own style that's unique for our life and for who we are. So as a parent, one of the most challenging things for me, you know, being a founder of a new business, it obviously required some trade-offs. There's a lot of noise from the outside about you know what you're doing a lot of judgment calls and ultimately you get down to this reality that it's about the quality of time that you spend with your your kids in this case my sons not the quantity or not this abstract notion of what others think I should be doing from a from a parenting style so how do you go about and especially with eight kids fostering quality over quantity of time
1: yeah so one of the ways I do it is really focusing on um, that integration we've talked about before. Um, I deliberately try to use um, every aspect of my life to complement the others. So I'll give you an example. Um, late last year, I made a trip to India. We have about 350 employees uh, in in the Delhi area of India. And I have a daughter uh, who is now 15 years old at the time uh, she was she was 14, and she The previous summer had shown a lot of interest in India for some reason. All of a sudden, I noticed that she was going with her friends to get henna tattoos and that uh, she was asking for Indian food uh, for dinner and and different things. It just caught my attention. And I I just said to her uh, off a whim someday, I said, you should come with me next time I go to India. And her eyes lit up. And and I just captured that moment. And so the next time I had to go visit uh, my team in India and, and was getting to go, I brought her along with me, and we had the most amazing week. Uh, we we left. We went to India for for two or three days. I can't remember um, how many it was exactly, but but she took her homework with her, and she worked in the office with me. Um, she had the office right next to mine, and um, she was doing her homework. Um, we brought in a couple of, we brought in a henna tattoo, uh, uh, artist to the office. We did a couple of things so that she wasn't just sitting there the whole day while I was in meetings. Um, but she was able to do her homework in the office. And she also, by the way, got to see me, got to see dad in a work environment. What do I do? Right. And, and learn about business. And we had some deep conversations. And then at night we were able to go out to dinner and we went out uh, we actually had a, a client visiting our office at the time. She was able to come with us and she saw me interact with a client. Um, All of these were really unique experiences. And so I integrated my life together. If here's my work life, um, I don't need to separate that from my family. I can bring my daughter along. And and that type of experience has allowed me to have some really rich, unique opportunities that I don't think other um, fathers have. And to your point, it's about our unique place in life and making those determinations for ourselves. Um, And and I've been able to do that type of thing in in a lot of different ways with different ones of my kids um, based on their own unique circumstances and based around my unique position um, that I'm able to do it. And then what I love about that is when others in my organization see that, they're able to do the same thing. I was on a trip um, at a conference. I was speaking at a conference about a year and a half ago and found out halfway through the conference that one of our senior leaders had brought their mom with them and, and their mom ended up coming to dinner with us. And, and I think that's awesome. That's what businesses should be. They should allow us to live our best selves. And we have a fiduciary responsibility to our shareholders, but shareholders also have a fiduciary responsibility to the employees under their care
0: um, to allow them to live life to their fullest. And, and I think that's how we should approach it. Yeah, so important. I mean, that that second the second part of that is something that gets left out of the debate all the time and it uh it drives me wild because it's <laughs> it's a fine line between uh working hard and creating this environment where people can't stop working and uh, that is not something that any of us uh want to do. So, David, when you're thinking about the the future of three pillar, the future of your life, what things are on the horizon that you're particularly excited about? What things are keeping you up uh, late or, you know, inspiring you to wake up early and uh, get back at it?
1: Well, I'll start with, I, I absolutely am one of the luckiest people in the world. I work up, wake up every morning and I love what I do. Um, and and what I love is this concept of building culture and environments where our employees can thrive and we can do great work for our clients. Um, but I also am very competitive and I really look at the landscape and how um, this digital economy is evolving. And say, we have a unique solution for the world where we truly know how to create digital businesses and to build those software products for our clients. And I think the world is in, in need of that. I, I see a lot of failure, right? The, the reality is about 78% from the research um, show that digital transformations fail and they're unable to build digital products that are actually creating that new um, revenue stream for, for the business. And I think the world needs that. And so we are very deliberate. We we're very fortunate several weeks ago landed a brand new strategic investor um, that is 100% behind our vision. And um, we are doing uh, some some M&A work right now. We are looking to expand our service lines. Um, We're doing several things to really take that vision to the next level and really invest in becoming the preeminent uh, partner to businesses for creating the digital products they need in order to survive and thrive in tomorrow's economy. Um, and so I, I'm really jazzed by that, right? That that is my job is to create that organization that can fill on that promise. And that really just gets me excited. Um, and the leadership aspect of that, of being able to push into um, creating an environment where we can not only pursue that vision together, but we can do it in a way that respects the individuals and provides them an opportunity to become the best version of themselves and provides them an opportunity to learn and Grow with the organization. um, That's the great responsibility I feel, and it's truly what excites me uh, day in and day out. Awesome,
0: and that is exciting to say the least. I feel it and hear it in your voice when you are taking a step back and thinking about some of the best advice that you've received over the course of your career. uh, What you know? Final thoughts here, if you had to leave our listeners with. One piece of advice, or you know, maybe two, that have served you well time and time again. What would that advice be?
1: Yeah, there, there's two things that we would go to. Um, the first one is a fundamental principle I remember learning from my father, which is about the prioritization of the person, that people matter. Uh, and I'll never forget something that happened. My, my dad was in, in the Air Force, like I, I said, and he, he was actually a, a brigadier general. So he was a career military officer. And, and I'll never forget when he was commanding um, the largest nuclear missile wing in the United States, actually in the world. Um, He had this junior enlisted um, uh, female, actually, on his team who tripped some of the requirements for fitness and specifically related to her weight. And I'll never forget him getting a phone call and just... pushing into the reality that people weren't looking at her as a human being and respecting who she was. And the reality was she knew this. he knew the situation from pushing into it. And she actually wasn't overweight because she was unfit. She was just big boned. And we're saying, we have to understand the realities of this human being. And just because it breaks a policy, we have to know what the policy is for. Um, And that lesson has stuck with me. I've seen it over and over. I've had other mentors uh, in business that have reinforced just the importance of the person uh, and humanity and respecting people as people, um, as opposed to just looking at them as a number or a a rule or, or whatnot. And so that's important. The second thing that I think speaks to this progression we talked about, about moving from being an entrepreneur to a CEO is the lesson of orchestration. Um, I had a mentor of mine, uh, our, our first chairman actually, other than myself, I, um, was a gentleman named Michael Deering. And my, Michael has um, run multiple public organizations as well as done uh, multiple um, high growth companies, private equity backed and venture backed companies. And he, one of his first lessons to me uh, was, was David, um, you are great at what you're doing, but you can't scale that way. So learn to not be a one man band, learn to be an orchestra leader. And that picture in my mind of what my job is, is not to play the violin, not to play the trumpet, um, not to, to, to run around playing all these instruments and, and looking like a crazy one-man band, but to actually orchestrate and get everybody on the same page of music and, and to keep the rhythm going um, and, and to create the vision for what we're trying to create in terms of beautiful music. Um, that vision has stuck with me uh, and really has resonated and helped provide for me the inspiration to continue to upgrade my leadership and try to get to the next level and next level and next level
0: wise words david this has been awesome thank you so much for being generous with your time and to everyone out there integrate your work life and yeah become an orchestra conductor of beautiful beautiful creations thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time mission daily and all of our podcasts are created with love by our team at mission.org Each morning, you'll get a newsletter that will help you start your morning and your day off right.